0: Everybody dies, don't they? It's Everybody
1: something. come back, don't they? Isn't that Everybody so? Come back, you tried to get into the locked room so today, you? didn't you? you tried. How, How did do you the long dead long
2: come long. back, mother? You? You What's died? the secret of the dead come back? Rosalind by Richmond Crompton. I had known Rosalind long before Heath saw her. I don't know where she came from originally. I think she was serving in a shop before she became old Follett's model. If you remember old Follett's paintings, you'll remember what she was like. A girl of about seventeen, with creamy skin, dewy grey-blue eyes, wonderful jet-black lashes, and a mop of short, red-gold curls. I remember noticing that the upper outline of her lips was the perfect arc of a circle. Her nose was delicious, a hint of the retrousse about it, and something childishly immature. She was small and graceful, not so much fairy-like as elfin-like. Of course, people talked when she went to Follett, but I happened to know that there was nothing in it. She was a perfect child, and old Follett treated her as though she were his daughter. He was a terrible old man, with a reputation like a piece of tissue paper, but Rosalind appealed to some hidden streak of fatherliness in him. I used to call it his studio a good deal, and Rosalind was almost always there. When she was not posing for him, she was cooking his meals, or mending his clothes, or cleaning the studio. She made him change his underclothing. Periodically, she cleaned his greasy old velvet jacket. Left to himself, he was the most filthy old ruffian I've ever met. He had a villainous brown beard that reached almost to his waist, and that no amount of persuasion would induce him to have cut. I think it was Follett who first made her dress in brown and gold. I never saw her wearing any other colours apart from her model's costumes, always warm brown with a touch of golden yellow. It was I who first took Heath at his own request to Follett's studio, and curiously enough... It wasn't any of the Rosalind pictures that had attracted Heath. It was some sketches of Canterbury that he'd seen at an exhibition that had attracted him. And hearing that I knew the artist, he'd come round to ask me to introduce him. That was like Heath. He wasn't an artist, and he wasn't particularly interested in art, but he was always darting off down side tracks, becoming suddenly interested in something, pursuing it madly for a time, and then tiring of it as suddenly and wandering on aimlessly till some fresh interest attracted him. He was having an art phase just then. I had known Heath from childhood. He seemed to have all the gifts that fortune could bestow—good looks, money, charm, ability, position—yet he just missed being what he might have been. He wasn't quite reliable. You could never be quite sure of him. He could do things so easily that he generally seemed to put off doing them altogether. He could have been a successful poet or novelist, but he had no patience for effort or disappointment. Even in athletics, in which he excelled, his off days were more numerous and erratic than other people's. When he promised to do anything for you, it was safer to assume that he'd forget. He mustn't have the type. There are thousands of men like that. But Heath's good looks and charm seemed somehow to place him apart. He fell in love with Rosalind at once. We sat in the studio and talked art, or rather old Follett held forth, and we listened. Old Follett could always hold forth by the hour. Rosalind brought in sandwiches and made coffee at a little machine on the table among the tubes of paint and palettes. I noticed that night for the first time how beautiful her hands were. She wore rather an absurd dress that followed her design for her heavy brown silk made in the medieval style, with a great Medici collar of gold lace. It didn't suit her a bit, but it made her look delicious and childish and heartrending somehow. Anyway, I saw Heath watching her and knew he'd fallen in love with her. I knew the signs of Heath's falling in love. I wasn't sure about Rosalind herself. She hardly looked at him, but with some women that's a bad sign. Heath didn't mention her when he went home. I knew that he had had countless love affairs, but I had an idea even then that this had gone deeper than most. I wasn't surprised when I heard that he was having lessons from Follett. He went there every evening. There must have been queer lessons. Follett had no more aptitude for teaching than Heath had for learning. But Follett could talk. Follett loved to talk. Follett, with his enormous expanse of brown beard and his greasy velvet jacket, a palette in one hand, a brush in the other, striding about the studio, talking, talking, talking. Heath, sitting on the paint-stained table, his eyes fixed on Rosalind, and Rosalind, moving about softly with her young, graceful movements, her adorable mop of curls, her delicious nose and mouth, not looking at either of them. Follett never sketched Rosalind when Heath was there, and never allowed Heath to sketch her, so he may not have been as obtuse as he seemed. Of course, he couldn't resist the ridiculously high fee that Heath offered for his lessons. I think Heath was tortured by the suspicion that Follett was her lover. Then Follett died. I was out of England at the time, but I saw the news in the papers. I wondered what would become of the ramshackle studio with its broken-down chairs and tables, and Rosalind. I went there the day after I returned to London. Heath opened a door. He was very voluble and excited. He'd bought the studio and all its motley furniture. He was an artist. He was working hard. He didn't mention Rosalind, but when she came into the studio with coffee and sandwiches, it seemed quite natural. She had altered, glowed into radiant beauty without losing that rather poignant look of childishness. Her happiness was patent to anyone who looked at her. She was gloriously, recklessly happy. I think it was partly her ecstasy of happiness that gave her that curious look of pathos. Heath was the same. They were desperately in love with each other, and he was working hard. The strange thing was that he had a distinct talent for art, just as he seemed to have a distinct talent for anything he put his hand to, and was turning out stuff that was extraordinarily good in its way bizarre, striking, and really original. I went there every evening. Heath had, for the time being, quite dropped out of his old circle. He spent all his time in the shabby little studio tucked away in a corner of Chelsea, playing at being an artist and adoring Rosalind. I used to watch Rosalind curiously. I've never seen a woman so happy, so deeply in love, so regardless of past and future. Her eyes hardly ever left Heath. They worked together, laughed together, talked together, cooked together, washed up together. It was all a glorious game. They often forgot my presence, and Heath would take her in his arms and kiss her passionately on her lips as though I hadn't been there. I seemed to see her now, leaning back in his arms with an anguish of ecstasy, her eyes closed, her face pale. I sometimes wondered what went on in Rosalind's mind. Did she really think it could last, or had she decided that their present happiness was worth all the sorrow that was to come? Certainly she showed no apprehension, no foreboding, yet no one could have seen them then, so young, so passionately in love, so handsome, without knowing that tragedy must be close on their heels. That sort of thing is too perfect to last in this life. It had no more occurred to Heath to marry Rosalind than it had occurred to Rosalind that he should marry her. Heath would be Viscount Evesham when his father died, and there was a strong streak of racial pride in him. I had always known that when Heath married, he would marry a woman of family and breeding and culture, a woman who could take her place in the world as Lady Evesham. He would not necessarily be in love with her, but he would deliberately choose such a woman. The present Viscount Evesham was very old and feeble, and I thought that the end of the Rosalind Idyll would come when he died and Heath became Viscount Evesham, but it came sooner than that. It came when Heath knew that Rosalind was going to have a baby. That pulled him up sharp, so would him, took the carefree joy and happiness from the situation. Rosalind was so pleased with herself that it was some time before she realised his attitude. At first, when she saw how he had changed towards her, he could no more hide his feelings than a child, she thought that he was ill. It was some time before she realised that her wonderful secret brought him only disgust, embarrassment and anxiety. The knowledge killed something in her, something that had been childishly joyous and trusting. It brought something very old and rather bitter into that lovely little face. I'm not sure that she didn't suffer more then than at anything that happened later. I remember a visit I paid them about this time. They were still in the studio. Heath was morose and silent. He avoided looking at her as though he found the sight of her distasteful. She had about four months of her time, and her boyish slenderness was gone. She was a white, unhappy ghost. Of course, it wasn't like Heath to let any bonds hold him but those of his own inclination. He began to be seen again at his clubs and at his friends' houses. He visited Rosalind less and less frequently. Then, one day he told me that he had sent her down to the country, till afterwards. She'll be better away from London, he said but I knew that the real reason was that he wanted her out of sight, and as far as possible, out of memory. I'd met him several times at Fringe Court before I realised what was in the wind. At first I hoped that it was Hope Cross, who was always staying there, but I soon discovered that it was Helen. He deliberately picked her out as the future Lady Evesham. She was everything he wanted his wife to be, of irreproachable birth and breeding, intelligent, cultured, dignified. In appearance, she was the opposite of Rosalind. I've met people who called her colourless. She was ivy-pale with soft waves of pale, cendré hair, light blue eyes and calm, sculptured lips. She looked like a princess lost in an enchanted forest. I'd been in love with her all my life, but I'd been waiting till I'd got a decent position to offer her. Now I knew I had no earthly chance against Heath. To do Heath justice, he never knew that I loved Helen. He came in one evening to tell me that Helen had accepted him. He was exuberant, excited, happy, almost the Heath of the Rosalind days. I could have hated him, if it had been possible to hate him. But somehow you couldn't hate Heath. He was so infernally attractive. And Rosalind? I said rather brutally. His face darkened. I'll go down and tell her, he said shortly. You'll provide for her and the child, of course, I said. He glared at me like a bad-tempered schoolboy. Of course, he said. I went down to see Rosalind the week after he told her. She was lying on the sofa very near her time. She still wore one of her brown-gold dresses. She was the ghost of her former self. Her face was sharpened and drained of its colour. Her little mouth was set in lines of piteous suffering and bravery. Her eyes were dull, as though her brightness had been washed away by floods of salt tears. All her radiance was gone, and yet... There still remained that poignant look of childishness that made her so pitiful. He told you, I said. She nodded, biting her pretty, twisted lips. Rosalind, I said, don't, don't take it so hard. You're young, you have all your life before you. You'll have the child. I don't want the child, she said in a dull little voice, now that he won't share it with me. I never thought it would be like this. I thought he'd be pleased. Now look here, Rosalind, I said, with that abominable cheerfulness with which one tries to rally depressed individuals. You mustn't take it like this. You'll forget in time. I shan't. I don't want to forget. Then the colour crept into her pale cheeks and she clenched her fists. I can't bear to think of her. I won't let him have her. Oh, she shan't. They shan't. I was surprised. And I was frightened. Rosalind, I said gently. Don't do anything foolish. She was suddenly still and very quiet. What sort of thing do you mean, she said. I mean, don't tell Helen, or anything like that. Oh no, she said in that strange little voice. I didn't mean anything that would make him angry with me. I don't think I should live long now, anyhow, she ended. I returned to my idiotic, self-imposed task of cheering her up. She watched me with a little smile as though she were amused. The next week the baby was born dead, and Rosalind died a day or two later. I was with Heath when the news came. I guessed what it was from the sudden look of relief on his weak, handsome face. He had been frightened. Helen was a deeply religious woman and an idealist, and he had been terrified of her finding out about Rosalind and the child. If it did not actually put an end to the engagement, it would bring him down with a pretty heavy bump from the pedestal on which she had set him. And now, by an extraordinary stroke of luck, both Rosalind and the child were dead. That's that, he said, as he handed me the telegram. It was as if, he said, a satisfactory end to an unsatisfactory business. At that moment I think I actually hated him. I went abroad for two months after that, and on my return I noticed that Heath was not looking well. He seemed to be developing nerves. He started at every sound. I stayed a weekend with him at his father's house in the country. It was something of a strain. We kept so carefully to impersonal subjects, avoiding Helen and Rosalind and his approaching marriage. We rode in the woods on the Saturday afternoon. It was autumn, and the trees were turning to vivid reds and golds. As we were returning, he reined his horse in suddenly with a quick jerky movement. Did you see her? he whispered sharply. I had seen before he spoke. We were passing an open grassy path at right angles to the one on which we were riding. At the end was an enormous beech tree, a riot of browns and golds. As we passed and looked down the avenue, a gust of wind tossed a low branch that almost swept the ground, and just for a second, in the shadowy distance, it looked like the likeness of a girl dressed in brown and gold. It was the branch in the wind, I said. A trick of the shadows. He bit his lip. It wasn't, he said between his teeth. I'm always seeing her. Characteristically, he had not entered the studio since he tired of Rosalind. Neither had he taken any steps towards selling or letting it. I've forgotten how Helen came to know about it. And I suppose that he or I mentioned it in some casual reference to old days. When he saw Helen's interest in it, he quickly changed the subject. But Helen, "'began eagerly to ask questions. "'Where was it? How big was it? "'Why hadn't she seen it before?' "'He answered sulkily, but we were all used to his sulkiness. "'There was something rather attractive and boyish about it.' "'Helen persisted. "'He must have a housewarming there. "'She must see it. "'Heath and I and she must have a picnic tea there the next day. "'She'd bring provisions and make tea for us.' "'Heath objected. "'It would be damp. "'The place would be inches deep in dust. "'It was a barn of a place.' He'd run her down to the coast instead and they'd have a decent picnic there, better than the mouldy old studio. But Helen persisted. Darling, I had no idea you are an artist. I'm too thrilled for words. I must see it. She laughed as she spoke, her blue eyes alight, the sunshine turning the waves of her fair hair to silvery gold. I can see her now. Heath gave in with a bad grace and allowed himself to be teased back into good humour. The picnic foredoomed to failure from the start. The air of the studio struck strangely chill, though there was bright sunshine outside. It seemed like a haunted place. I saw Helen shiver and draw her furs around her as she entered. Heath's face looked grey in the sudden gloom. The windows were filthy. The cord that drew back the blind from the skylight was broken, and we couldn't reach it. The corners were full of cobwebs. Everything was covered with dust. The table was a medley of dirty paint tubes, paper, brushes and pallets. A clay figure seemed to grin horribly from a dark corner. On a plate on the windowsill was a mouldy peach. There was a damp, dead sort of smell over everything. And suddenly, I had a vision of the place as it had been, bright and cosy and clean, full of love and light and laughter. Rosalind going to and fro with the inevitable coffee and sandwiches, Rosalind sitting on the hearth rug bobbing cherries, Rosalind laughing her hauntingly sweet little laugh, Rosalind in Heath's arms on the very spot where Helen now stood. No wonder the place was cold and grey and heartbroken. Helen gave a sudden little cry, and we both turned to her. What's the matter? I said quickly. Nothing, said Helen. She looked startled, half amused, half ashamed. I'm so sorry, it was nothing. I... It must have been the sunshine and the dark oak. Just for a second, it looked as if the door were open and a girl stood there dressed in brown and gold. Then, when I looked properly, I saw the door was closed and it was just the sunlight on the dark oak. I'm sorry I startled you. Of course, the thing was hopeless after that. Heath went white to the lips. He kept looking behind him into the dark corners of the room. When the door creaked as we were having tea, he dropped his cup and saucer with a clatter. I could see perspiration on his brow. He kept moving his dry lips as he gazed fixedly at the closed door. Helen was splendid. She carried off the situation, made tea, laughed and chatted, and refused to notice the tenseness of the atmosphere. After tea, she opened a portfolio that lay on the table and began to look at his sketches. Of course, the first one she took up was one of Rosalind. Rosalind dressed as a page boy, her lips curved into a deliciously impudent smile, a mop of red-gold curls of flame and the sunshine. Rosalind. Instinct, with life and laughter and roguery. Poor little dead unhappy Rosalind. What an adorable child, said Helen. Who is she? Heath had got himself in hand by this time. Oh, um, just a model, he said, almost casually. Later, when Helen and I were looking at the view from the window, I saw him take out that sketch and slip it into his pocket. There was another portfolio full of sketches of Rosalind which Helen never found. I saw Heath's eyes wander to it constantly, as if afraid lest she should discover it, and once he carelessly pushed it still farther out of sight beneath some papers. But Helen was genuinely surprised and impressed by the quality of Heath's paintings, and that gradually soothed him. He was always childishly susceptible to praise. I didn't see Heath for some time after that. Our next meeting was a curious one. It occurred to me suddenly to go down to see Rosalind's grave. I hated to think of it untended and uncared for. I thought I might make some arrangements to have it looked after regularly. I took a train from town to the village station and went to the little churchyard. When I found the grave, I stood motionless with astonishment. It was February, but the grave was literally covered with roses and orchids freshly laid upon it, the most expensive roses and orchids it was possible to buy. Then I saw Heath coming round from behind the church to it. He'd brought armfuls of roses and orchids down from Bond Street and laid them on the grave with no means of keeping them fresh, no water or tins or anything like that, simply laid them in heaps on the grave of Rosalind and his child. He showed no embarrassment at being found there, no surprise at finding me there. He said as casually as if we had met at the races, There's a train down in about fifteen minutes. You coming? We walked back to the station in silence. I looked at him curiously. He was thinner. His face was lined and jerky somehow. He looked on wires, and there was suffering in his face. When the station was in sight, he said suddenly, Did you see the baby? No, I didn't either. I couldn't get down. That was Heath all over. He'd managed to persuade himself that he'd wanted to get down to Rosalind and the child, and hadn't been able to. But... I'm glad it was a boy. She wanted a boy. Then I knew what had happened. His love for Rosalind was coming back into his heart. The old, passionate, now torturing love. I'd always known that Rosalind had gone deeper than any of his previous love affairs. I'd suspected that it was Helen's suitability to fill the position of his wife that had attracted him, rather than love for her. And now love for Rosalind, an aching, torturing, longing for Rosalind, Stronger than any other passion he had ever known was haunting him. Poor little unhappy ghost. She was amply avenged now. We parted at the London terminus. You coming my way, I said. No, I'm going to the studio. Taking up painting again? No. No, he wasn't taking up painting again. He was sitting alone in the haunted studio, longing for her feeding his cheated love on memories of her every word and gesture, listening for the echoes of her silvery laughter, looking through the portfolio he had hidden from Helen. His marriage day drew near. You will understand that, apart from my own feeling for Helen, I wasn't happy about the marriage. Yet I thought that once married to Helen he would forget Rosalind and learn to love Helen. No one could help it. And Helen would be an ideal wife for him. She was so wise. She would manage him so well. I wanted him to be happy. With all his faults and weaknesses, he was a likable fellow. And Helen, he could give her the sort of position she seemed born to fill. I was to be best man, of course. Heath and I went down to stay at the inn at Craigford, where Helen lived with her aunt, Lady Freen. Lady Freen was deaf and very rheumaticy, and doesn't come into the story. We arrived the day before the wedding and Helen insisted on our going out to lunch with them. She said that she knew it was unconventional, but it seemed so silly not to. We were all a bit on edge. Together we would be able to laugh it off. That lunch was a strange meal. The sunny panelled dining room was very different from the dusty, cobwebby studio. But that lunch with Helen reminded me of the never-to-be-forgotten picnic in Old Follett's studio. There was the same electric atmosphere, the same sensation of standing on the crust of a volcano. Heath was unlike himself, feverishly gay at one minute and morosely glum the next. I thought again how white and drawn his handsome face looked. Helen was her usual self, charming, interesting, the perfect hostess. After lunch, Helen suggested that we should go for a walk. I believe she hoped it would clear the air and restore Heath to his normal self. I think we all felt a heavy sense of apprehension, a dim foreboding of evil, all except Heath, who now seemed feverishly excited. I want to tell what followed, as accurately as I can, but it happened so quickly that it's difficult. We were walking along the road. On the side on which we were walking was a hedge, on the other the high wall that surrounded the grounds of Freen Court. A motor car was coming towards us at a moderately slow rate. We all saw it for some time before it was abreast of us. Just as it came abreast of us, Heath stepped forward suddenly into its direct line. The driver had no chance to pull up. It simply knocked Heath down and went over him. Yet it was not as if Heath deliberately stepped in front of the car. He didn't seem to see the car. It was as if he darted suddenly forward to cross to the other side of the road, car or no car. Nothing mattered except to reach the other side of the road. That was the impression I had as he stepped forward. The driver was a good fellow. He took us all back to Freen Court and then drove like fury for a doctor. But Heath was dead when we picked him up from the road. It was the day after the funeral. I felt that I'd got to have things out with Helen. It looked horribly as if Heath had deliberately committed suicide to avoid marrying her, but I was sure it wasn't that. I found Helen in the garden. She looked very pale and very beautiful in her black dress. Helen, I blurted out, he didn't do it on purpose. I know, she said, it was the girl on the other side of the road. She beckoned to him just as the car was passing. What girl? Didn't you see her? She wore a long brown dress with a gold Medici collar. She had a child in her arms, and she held it out to him, and beckoned. I saw nothing. He did. Didn't you hear? Hear what? He gave a little cry when he saw her, and then he ran to her. There was no one there, I said. The road was quite empty. Who was she? She said, as if she had not heard me. I I saw nothing, I repeated doggedly. Whose baby was it? I shrugged my shoulders. I felt horribly shaken. Hers, presumably, if she was holding it, I said, trying to speak in the half-bantering tone in which one humours a romancing child. She replied in a voice that was barely audible. And was it his, too? I can tell you nothing, I said. I saw nothing. Helen had a bad breakdown after that. was ordered abroad for a year. We were married two years later and have been perfectly happy ever since. But we have never mentioned either Rosalind or Heath's death to each other. I think we feel that we owed him that much loyalty, at least.
0: Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, back, don't they? Isn't that so?
1: You tried to get into the locked drawer today,
2: didn't you? you tried How to do the long dead long come back, mother? Day, didn't you? You What's the secret of it? That was Rosalind by Richmond Crompton. And I think that was one of the best stories we've read for um, quite a long time. But anyway, I am being forgetful. Happy New Year. So, Happy and New Year and welcome to 2021. We can only hope that 2021 is a better year than 2020, which, as years go, was fairly dreadful. So there we are, probably the worst year of my life, being honest, but there we are, for all sorts of reasons, but I know other people have had um, similar challenges, not just COVID, but it, COVID made it all worse. Okay, let's get back to the fun, though. Richard Crompton was born in Berry in Lancashire in 1890, and she died in Bromley, Kent in 1969 when she was age 78. She had a heart attack, as it turned out. She'd been out, but she was well up until that point. She'd been out to see a friend, was driving back, felt unwell, logged herself into the hospital, and um, died, sadly. So she was the daughter of a clergyman, and we remember that many ghost story writers are the children. There will be a, there will be a paper written on this, you know, not by me. But, and we talked about whether that's because they're brought up in, in a, an atmosphere which accepts the spiritual, or it might be that they are educated but not rich. So they, they have to find a living through their education, so they turn to writing. could be that. That's, that's a good theory, I just thought of that one. So her dad was a clergyman, but he, he, although he was ordained, he actually worked as a teacher of Greek and Latin classics at Bury Grammar School. So she wasn't born into the aristocratic world portrayed in this story. She was educated at a private school for the daughters of clergymen in Lancashire, and she trained as a schoolteacher like her father, and got a BA in classics from the Royal Holloway College in London in 1914. She was a, a supporter of women's suffrage, so she wanted the right to vote. Fair enough, and she worked as a teacher until 1923 when she became a full-time writer. She was quite a successful writer. She never married and had no children, and um, she gave the rights of her works to her niece when she passed away. When she, was in her, when she wasn't too old, she contracted polio and had to use a wheelchair for the rest of her life. She'd moved to Bromley, which is part of South London now, really, it, technically in Kent, And then was a village just outside London, and she was twenty-seven then, and she went to teach at the school there. But when she uh, became a writer, she didn't move, and she became so successful that she had a house built for herself on the common. Of course, she she actually published forty-one novels, and her famous, most famous series of novels was for children, and featured the comic figure of William, a rather feckless, untidy, rumbustious schoolboy. And I remember reading the William stories; some of my favourite books when I was. Uh, probably eight or nine, maybe ten. And they're, they're so funny. They really are so funny. And I loved them. They're hilarious. Uh, she wrote several ghost stories, and these were published in 1928 as Mist and other stories. And I think uh, Richard Dolby, who was um, an editor of Ghost Stories, uh, published, just, actually I know this because I've just bought it on Kindle. It's only available on Kindle, which is a reprint of her stories. I think she's pretty good. So Rosalind. In Rosalind, we're plunged once more into that Edwardian world of the leisured rich of England, such as we see in the stories of E.F. Benson, and which she wasn't a member, you know, she was not party to that lifestyle, really. Um, And this story is about an artist and his model. And you remember in the yellow sign, we have an artist and his model, although the story is quite different. That's more a, a horror story, a cosmic horror story. I really like it. I also like this one, but it's different. I think it's one of the best that i said. I think the characterization is great. Our unnamed narrator paints pictures of these people. Heath, oh, his handsome, weak face, you know, this is the talented rich boy. He can do anything he wants. He's got such privilege and he's bored and spoiled. And, but he's genuine, but, but sentimental, very sentimental. He falls, so he's not, he's not, he's mixed, isn't he? He's not evil and wicked and he's not really a caricature. He is a weak man who is likable, and who goes towards his sentiment, and so he falls in love with Rosalind, and it's wonderful and beautiful. And of course, we get the the class thing, which you also got in um, the Yellow Sign. You know, the the artist model, no matter what she thinks. And it's it. I think a clever thing is it's, you know, it's never portrayed that Rosalind ever thought she was going to be Lady Evesham. That that was never possible for her, and she knew that. Who knows what? And I think that. That picture of, an un, of a confused, unfocused outcome to the relationship is probably realistic. You know, she isn't really thinking too clearly about what will happen. Uh, I think he says at the moment, you know, they were very happy and it prepared them for the tragedy that was to come. So there she is and everything's chim dandy. And, but it won't last because he has to marry somebody suitable. This reminds me of the crown, of course, and uh, Prince Charles and Lady Diana Spencer. You know, he had to marry somebody who would be a very good Lady Evesham. Now, in a lovely twist, the one he wants to marry is Helen, who is the woman our man is in love with, our narrator, and has always loved her. And our narrator is such a decent guy. It makes me wonder about Helen, though. Helen clearly doesn't know our narrator. She marries him later, as we know but she doesn't know that our narrator is in love with him, or she does. And if she does, that makes her a little bit cynical, although he only says nice things about her. People find her colourless, but to him, she was like uh, an enchanted princess. Now, I, it, a thought occurred to me, old Richmond Crompton never married. Now, that doesn't mean that she was gay, but maybe she was, because these women are very beautifully painted, you know, they're very attractive women. That doesn't mean anything, I don't know that, but uh, I just wondered. But Heath is a selfish narcissist, and he sees the, her, Rosalind's pregnancy as being the kibosh on his official relationship. So he sends her away very cruelly. And our man, our narrator, is a decent sort, and he goes to see Rosalind, and he tries to reason with her and cheer her up. But Rosalind has the um, prescience to know that she is not long for this world. And she threatens, she doesn't want Helen to have him, her man, her Heath. Uh, and so that ties into what actually happens at the end. So, of course, as we know, because you've heard the story, what actually happens at the end? Well, we know that Heath is haunted by Rosalind, and she beckons him across the road. He doesn't want to kill himself. So I, when I was writing the notes, I was a bit ambivalent, but now looking back and thinking about it, I think that Rosalind deliberately killed him so that Helen couldn't have him in a timely manner because the wedding was the next day, so Helen would never have him. Poor old Helen has a decency to never a breakdown, if you know what I mean. You know, she she clearly did have feelings for Heath. Uh, it wasn't uh, superficial, so maybe it wasn't. But then she managed to marry our man and have live happily ever after, after. No, I thought the characterization was pretty cool. It was a standard, but, you know, we want standard. Ghost story, it was a writing of wrongs. It, ghost stories are moral stories generally, and the payoff is when the right thing happens. And we, as readers, we don't approve of Heath. We're not supposed to approve of Heath. In a sense, he gets his comeuppance, and I think that we might you know, not have done it ourselves, but it feels that it's a moral conclusion to pay for his bad behaviour in spurning Rosalind. You know, Rosalind gets her revenge. So there you go. So I really liked that story. I thought it was very well done. And I thought I'd do it on New Year's Day for you. So, otherwise, I hope, I hope you had a lovely Christmas. I hope you enjoyed the MR James for Christmas. We, I'm, t- I'm working. I've been working. I haven't taken any extra days over Christmas because I get the, the statutory bank holidays, Christmas Day, Boxing Day, which is St Stephen's Day. Gwyllus San Stefan in Welsh. Good King Whistler's last went out on the Feast of Stephen. So, Boxing Day, 26th of December and uh, New Year's Day. I'm, I don't, I'm a bit too old to drink now, much, but in my youth I did. Yeah, I'm just hoping for a, a lovely 2021, and it'd be nice to go on holiday somewhere. Okay, but I'll let you all know. I'll, <laughs> who knows, I may record an episode from Santorini or somewhere, or uh, Sorrento. Okay, there we are. So the music, I'm going to put a bit of music on now. Um, I've got a Drowning by Dvoinik in the middle. I've got the, the folk horror one from the Hartwood Institute. Rise Up, Come Now, from the furrows, from the forest, from the fields. Then I've got A Drowning. And then I've got The Unquiet Grave by Grey Malkin. Um, so, can if you want to hang around and listen to that, do. I, I'm going to. I really like them. Oh yeah, Begging Bowl, Begging Bowl. Yeah, share share this. Let everybody know about it. We're doing all right in numbers, that's fine, but, you know, more won't hurt. And, of course, if you felt like signing up to Patreon or Substack the Paid Alternative, or, that was my phone, or if you fancy buy me a coffee, as many of you do, so many thanks to that, many thanks to you all for that. Uh, all of that's gratefully received. I will be back soon. I'm going to do, my plans for the new year are for the for the exclusive bonus stuff i'm going to do dracula i wanted to do it for a long time it will be it will take many months i think to do uh, and for the kind of the free episodes i've got a few lined up i'm not exactly sure which to do first but that's part of the beauty isn't it
1: I'm going to the forest and the forest and find the
3: The wind doth blow today, my love, and a few few, small, small drops of rain, I never, I never had, had but one true love, in cold, cold grave, he grave he was lame, in cold grave he was lame, in, in cold grave he was lame. It's we bubble My breath smells earthy earthy strong. If you you have have one kiss of my cold lips, your time will not be long. Your time will not be long. Your time. yourself cont- cont-